if you're serious about being a serious modern publisher, whether that is through the magazine or online or, or social, you need to not just listen to but incorporate the voices of the changing public. And that's what we're trying to do. Welcome to Media Voices, everybody. The final Media Voices, if you can believe it, of this year. I'm Chris Sutcliffe. I'm Esther Thorpe. And I'm Peter Houston. That clip you heard was from this week's interview with Paul McNamee, UK editor of The Big Issue. We spoke about The Big Issue's breakthrough scheme, paying disadvantaged young people to get into journalism, why the magazine needed a redesign, and Paul's experience of working with designer Matt Willey, Subs, digital first news, and balancing campaigning with making a properly entertaining magazine. But before then, we do want to let you know that the deadline to enter the Publisher Podcast Awards has been extended to this Friday, which is going to be the 17th of December. So details and entry forms are on the website, which is publisherpodcastawards.com. Do head over there if you have an amazing podcast that you want to shout about and share. And if you want to nominate somebody for Podcast Hero of the Year, then please do so, because that's, I suppose, our favourite part of the awards, is recognising somebody who's been pushing the medium forward. But before then, we're going to get into our main story. And because this is our last podcast of the year, we're each going to do an outrageous prediction from what we think is going to be a development in the media world in 2022. Whose idea was that? <laughs> well, it was. So this was a very sort of like last minute idea. And it just made me think, well, fucking hell, there's so much that I think is going to go wrong next year. But I don't want to concentrate on all of that. Um, so I suppose let's begin with Peter. So, Peter, what's your big prediction for next year? Okay, this comes with all sorts of caveats. <laughs> Predictions is a fool's game. Um, I, I actually think, I, I know Esther's going to bang her head on the desk here at this point. I think the return of micropayments, I think micropayments are going to come back into the paid content conversation. Um, not in a sort of no more paywalls, let's do micropayments kind of way, but as an alternative. Pop Bitch has just uh, signed up with Axie, and I, that really made me think, okay, what's going on here? Because, and it's a member scheme, it's not micropayments. Mm. But it Pop, made me Pop think Bitch about... Pop have been doing micropayments for a long time now, haven't they? No, what, what, what triggered this in my head was that, because I always thought of Axie as a micropayments company. And then I saw that they were doing this membership type thing with Pop Bitch, and I thought, okay, there's this, there's, what's actually developing here is this, paid content continuum trademark <laughs> um, and the worst got, episode of Star Trek ever <laughs> you've got <laughs> uh, you've got this this kind of free to casual payments to subscriber or supporter to VIP member thing going on and companies like Axie I think are now this is like a fucking advert for Axie. These guys should be giving us loads of money. Um, you know, companies like Axie are, are able to put that whole continuum together now. Mm. I love that 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 casual payment or pay per day idea. But this, but this is the thing that like we've we've been expecting as an industry for so long. People just to jump straight into marriage. Like you know, no dating, no sort of no engagement. Mm. Just just right, you know, yes, straight straight in wallet up monthly fees and and it's kind of this idea that actually this this is almost the the, the dating of the reader revenue yeah. well 
it's i think it's like it's a necessary consequence of as you've said that kind of the, the shutting out of a lot of payment options so regardless of what you think about the kind of the how viable micropayments are for news products people do seem to want them people are always talking people are always mm. banging on about how oh why can't i just pay for you know yeah. one article at a time um but at the same time as esther said that hard paywall kind of you have to register you have to pay up front for you know, a month seems to shut out a lot of experimentation I'll also say, I've always said on this, it always needed Apple and Google to get behind it. And I know yeah. Google is working on it. And, you know, you look at sort of how how much people use things like Apple Pay these days. If if they can get that kind of infrastructure in place for casual small payments, it'll really, I think it'll really take off. Are we not worried that those platforms are then going to take enough of a cut to make it no, not definitely. financially viable? Absolutely. All right. I don't think, <laughs> I don't think they necessarily need to provide the infrastructure. Um, but I think Esther's right, is that they have to, you know, there's, there's got to be that sort of seen as as a support, if you like, that it will integrate with Apple Pay or Google Wallet or whatever it's called. Um, yeah, that's a good point, actually. It can't be reliant on any one kind of provider yeah. of the tech. It has to be a universal thing. Yeah. I think, you know, the big thing for me is that paying for content is way more common than it was. People are hitting paywall limits in places that they never thought they would hit paywall limits. <laughs> Um, the contribution donation model is getting to be more common. Um, and I think Esther's right. People don't necessarily want to, you know, commit the way that, that they would. You know, in the, the initial wave of paid content is you subscribe to the things you love, yeah? And then once you've done that and you start hitting other paywalls, you're thinking, well, I don't want to subscribe to him because I don't love him, but I'd really like to read that article. <laughs> no, but I think it will return properly. To, to the kind of paid content conversation. So that's my prediction. Uh, my prediction is less, um, I suppose, jolly than that. <laughs> and sp- speaking of overcommitments to things, so I know I know that we have just spoken about it. We, we, we spoke about it in our Media Moments 2021 20, kind of wrap-up with, with guest speakers, but we spoke about how publishers have been burned with the pivot to video and now they need a solid commercial basis for anything they undertake but i am worried given the hype and given the overextension of brands uh, news brands into new mediums that given the amount of money that's being thrown at the metaverse that we are going to see some a pivot to metaverse (laughs) effectively not to kind of coin a phrase but (laughs) so I just think that the, the emergence of the, the need to have a, a presence on those platforms and the sheer amount of money that Facebook is going to be throwing at those places, I think we're going to see publishers tempted to at least experiment with it without any financial it basis. It doesn't exist yet. Can we not pivot to it? <laughs> it's, that's the, but that's the problem. That we're building a house upon the sand here again. So You're building yeah. a house on the clouds. <laughs> but what's, so, what is actually interesting is that there's brands and I'm sure publishers actually buying <laughs> rabbit ears, real estate. <laughs> yeah. And and the the metaverse and you know that's a statement of intent and I'm buying this plot that I can build my virtual <laughs> reality pleasure palace on. Yeah, and listen, I've I've got I have a an Oculus Quest, um, and I was, I've been playing with it all week, and it is a very very impressive piece of tech. And some of the software that you can do, you know, some of the tools you can use 
to communicate with people are really, really impressive. The problem is that I think we're going to see publishers experiment with it and then overextend and then not have a viable way of making money from it. So I'm thinking about virtual fitness classes are going to be run by health and fitness titles, particularly if we go into another lockdown. Um, and we're also going to see you know meet and greets with celebrities, probably Lily Cole. She's across all this kind of stuff in platforms like Roblox and Facebook Horizon. But I don't necessarily think that we're going to have a, a, a decent ROI on this, at least to begin with. And we're going to go down that same road with pivot to video and over-promising and under-delivering. I That's just my don't, prediction. I don't understand with fitness classes. How do you get sweaty with that thing on your head? You can seriously. You can get ridiculously sweaty with it. I've been playing a horror game and it's ugly. Yeah. I said, I said, like, why? Why would you want to exercise with that on your head? Like, you want to exercise with as little on you as possible. But it's but it's the weight. It's the weight. You know, if anything, you're carrying. You're burning even more calories by having it on your head. What does that mean for evolution? (laughs) Does that mean that, like, in in a million years' time, everyone will have really thick necks from holding up those stupid headsets? (laughs) Oh my god! If that is Facebook's enduring legacy to the world, is that everyone just gets really (laughs) thick necks as opposed to thick heads? Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, I hope it doesn't come to pass, but I'm I'm seeing some early signs of it, and I'm worried. I'm worried about it. Well, if you thought that was a doom and gloom prediction, I'm afraid mine's even worse. <laughs> we should have put you last, Peter. Yeah, Peter's well, the you optimist. Know what? I think that is needs need that needs pointing out here. I am the optimist <laughs> in this. It's a Christmas miracle. My prediction is that we're actually going to end up heading for a bit of a reckoning for audio moderation next year. Um, I was reading something yesterday that Twitter has come under fire for its spaces because it's had a flood of quote racists and Taliban supporters just starting rooms. Yeah, this is the this is the ultimate unintended consequence of that, isn't it? And yeah, it, I mean, Twitter was warned about it. It's ridiculous. Oh yeah, yeah. Like his employee said, if you just let anybody start a space, you will get all this rubbish come up. Um, and yeah, you know, like Clubhouse is similar. Like quite a lot of the sort of mainstream has left Clubhouse now, and it's now just sort of hub for like these drama rooms that spew sort of hate, misogyny, controversy, um, you know, asking things like, "Do women actually like being beaten?" That sort of thing. Um, and you just think it's it, it's really difficult in in the live audio space. Like how how do you moderate content? I think platforms are going to have to get to say that they're going to have to figure that out before yeah. this gets a lot worse. Like Facebook's just launched its live audio rooms, and given its track record with disinformation, <laughs> um, that's not going to go very well. No, there's that. Oh God, uh, it's hard even to think of a tech solution. You know, you can do yes. checking for keywords, you can do automatic transcription for this kind of stuff. But you're yeah, right, but on, honestly, so automatic transcription. Too. What Otter reckons you two say sometimes? <laughs> <laughs> To be fair, it's probably a lot more credible than what we do say. Yeah. I, mean, I think there's two stages. There's there's podcasts, which um, last year a lot of people pointing out are actually starting to become huge vectors for misinformation. I mean, you think about some of the controversies that people like Joe Rogan sparked with, with their vaccine um, queries. Um, queries, quote, unquote. <laughs> um, uh, podcasts are that little bit, well, it, they're still very difficult to moderate, but they're a little bit easier because they're not live. It's then this sort of live audio space. It's just, it's an absolute minefield. I think at some point we're going to have to hit reckoning with it. Mm. I'd be interested to see if anybody adopts kind of like a Reddit type uh, moderation role where people step up and say, well, look, I'm going to be responsible for this. You kind of on my head be it if anything goes wrong. You know, if, if there is a subsequent audit of a, of a live stream and it turns out that something was said, then, you know, there is a one person upon whose head it kind of the blame can fill. But I don't know. You, I don't right. think it's you're going to get the censorship calls again. And- mm-hmm. But I, th- I don't think moderation is a is a is a possibility here. I think it is going to be shutdowns. Mm-hmm. They're going to have to go in and say this room is crap. You people are awful. 
get off my get off my lawn. You know, it's got to be like that because you can't moderate live audio. It's impossible. You know, like a Big Brother. <laughs> Please don't swear you're live on Big Brother. You know, that's not going to work in Twitter Spaces. But then when you've got these head cases talking about, you know, whatever it is, beating people or racism or misogyny or joining the Tory party, you know, whatever <laughs> it actually is. Yeah. yeah at least know. with, yeah, at least with our podcasts, we can edit anything out. So if I were to start talking about, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that, was, we... that was probably depressing, Esther. Thanks for that. <laughs> Sorry. And now on to our final news and brief of the year. Uh, Esther, what is your key story from the past week? Uh, BuzzFeed has gone public. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> Although not quite as they <laughs> might have liked. <laughs> well, it, it's the first major digital media company to do so, so all eyes are on it. Um, but I, th- I think this is a bit of an understatement. It wasn't all plain sailing for them. Um <laughs> It raised just 16 million of the nearly 300 million invested before the SPAC, which is a shortfall of 94%. That is ridiculous. Um, because a lot of investors got cold feet and withdrew like the week before the deal was finalized. Mm. So share, share price has been a bit volatile this week. That, that's perfectly normal for a company that's just gone public. Um, so I think there's just a lot of people just watching to see what happens over Christmas and New Year as things calm down a little bit but what i thought was interesting was the, this idea that it was seen as not just a um a judgment upon buzzfeed but upon on those kind of digital media space in general and those digital pure plays so this wasn't necessarily a something purely relegated to kind of buzzfeed and its own sort of i suppose lack of focus and difficulty in actually generating revenue but about kind of digital media as a whole i think that's a problem with these things that they're they're relying on <laughs> Sorry for the pun, but they're relying on the buzz that 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 they create, mm. um, you know. And I and I think that that this I don't want to call it a failure, but this road, what's, what do you call it? The speed bump mm. um, is going to be it's going to put off some of the other ones that we're talking about this kind of thing. Because Vice withdrew, didn't they? Vice was yeah. going to do this, and then they withdrew it all. Uh, yeah, Group Nine. Group nine did early. Group nine did us back early this year. Vice were thinking about it. Um, there's there's a couple of sort of quite big ones that are sort of thinking about it and we're potentially looking at merging together. But yeah, they're not not anymore. Um, but yeah, all, all eyes have been on Buzzfeed just to see how this uh, this goes. Wow. It, it, it's still very early days, but it's definitely not the kind of high flying um, launch they're hoping for. My second positive story of the day, people. <laughs> Uh, the Week founder, John Connell, has launched The Knowledge. It's a news digest for the digital era. Um, this is interesting. You know, he's taken the idea of The Week, which he founded in 1994. And Jesus. actually, he only ceased to be involved when Dennis uh, sold it. Hmm. I know, when Exponential. Uh, yeah, Exponent took bought over. Dennis. Exponent or Xbox or whatever it was took over. He only ceased to be involved at that point, which is what, 2019? Mm, that's a hell of a run on one time. Anyway, he's he's clearly got bored, although he, I know he's got some other stuff going on. And over lockdown, him and his daughter have come up with this idea for the knowledge. Um, and th- what's interesting about this is the, so the week was print back in 1994. This, the knowledge, is digital. 
And then the sort of driving force behind it seems to be a daily newsletter. So it's the same idea, you know, links to other content with kind of smart summaries. Um, and yeah, it looks really interesting. What's Talking that? about a younger audience. What's, <laughs> I don't know, he's he's apparently knows Lord Rothermere and Lord Rothermere has put some money in. So we're hoping that the DMG media bandwagon doesn't get well, I, don't even know, I don't even know how to talk about DMG media at the moment and this is neither a positive nor a negative story it's a confusing story so speaking of DMG media it's been a game of musical chairs at the company following Paul Dacre's return to the role of editor-in-chief of the mail uh, Mount stuffed with sour grapes from his failure to secure the role at Ofcom even though he was handed it um, some key talent has also departed so mail editor Jordy Gregg is out um, and he's taken some key staff as well, including the paper's head of PR, John Wynne Jones. And more shocking still, the man behind the success, in purely numerical terms at least, of Mail Online, Martin Clark, is also gone. Uh, and the implication seems to be that Rothermere would have rather retained Clark, um, but for kind of the, the intervention of, say, Yadakers and this idea that the, the, the rapid reorganization of the Mail hasn't given Clark enough stake to kind of invest in his own startup mentality there. So it's a, it's a power struggle. I've seen it described, you know, in terms of Game of Thrones and Succession. But the reality is, it's just a very, very dull, very, very dull power struggle there. Um, but one with potentially huge implications for a paper that was pre-Daker coming back, attempting to move away from kind of his trademark model of nastiness for its own sake. Yeah, I'm going to call you out on saying that this is not a negative story. This is absolutely a negative story. Okay. This is bad news. I don't understand rich people. I really don't. Merry Christmas <laughs> <laughs> This week's guest is Big Issue UK editor Paul McNamee We spoke about getting disadvantaged young people into journalism magazine redesigns developing a meaningful digital presence for the Big Issue but first I asked Paul about his recent induction into the Scottish PPA's Hall of Fame it was a big surprise. Uh, it was a very nice surprise. Um, these sort of things normally come to people, I, I think, closer, closer to the end of their career. A little further along in their career. Yeah, and, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> all that being said, it was still, it's still very nice. When you, I know it sounds like a cliche when you say when, when the, your industry and the people you work with recognise what you're doing. Um, especially when you don't solicit this kind of response, it means something, and it really did. And I, I, I didn't think it was for me, or you know, whether it ever would be to be at that kind of um, that position and and to garner that kind of recognition. But it was, it was really, really lovely, and I, I felt very, very pleased to be there to get it. Very well deserved. Who else is in there? I know Jackie Bird, I remember, and... Uh, Mark Miller. All oh, right. Cool. Uh, yeah, and Mike Sutar's in Mike there Sutter, as well. Mike I remember Mike, yeah. It's oh, not bad company to be keeping. It's, it's pretty good, it's pretty good. I, I let, me, let, me, let me say, I am the young buck in here. <laughs> <laughs> Making that point. I very much am. Right, okay. We'll underline that. The youngest <laughs> inductee of the Hall of Fame. Yes. Um, you've been at Big Issue, though, for, what, over 10 years? Yeah, I was, 
I've been at Big Issue. I started um, at Big Issues in Scotland about 12, almost 13 years ago. Um, I went in initially as deputy editor in the Scottish edition. At that time, there were many editions across Britain because of the way the Big Issue was constituted. Yeah. So there was, and each had their own editorial team, Scotland, Wales, um, even the south of England, as well as the rest of England. So there were, there were all these teams, and I went in at the time as deputy in Scotland. Um, they were trying to change a couple of things around. I'd been on a title in Ireland, and the chief exec asked if I could try some things, and I did. And then I became editor in Scotland. Um, and then they started to move to towards one title. Initially, they had this pan-Celtic title thing, so <laughs> I was editor of the Welsh and the Scottish edition. So I was travelling a lot between Glasgow and Cardiff. And then uh, about 10 years ago, uh, the, the board realised that it was becoming uh, counterproductive to still have different editorial teams and particularly different advertising teams all trying to get a bite out of a changing and d diminishing pie. So at that point, they said, right, we need one, one national edition I became editor then, and that's when the whole thing really started to take off for me. Is there still editorial offices in different places, or is it all in Glasgow? There, it, we've only two. We have an editorial. Well, the main base for the editorial is in Glasgow. There is a, an editorial base uh, in London. Yeah. That, until quite recently, had been mostly back office stuff, whether it's HR or IT support, and also some of big issue investor in there but because of the investment we have put into digital there's now a digital team down there mm -hmm. and that's also where the breakthrough team is based out of so that has increased in size over the the last year uh, you mentioned that breakthrough scheme that's a big deal tell me tell me a bit about that well that um that's something i've been trying to do or, or do a version of that for, for quite some time um the, the general the general idea is, as you and I know, and we've discussed this in, in the past, an awful lot of the media has contracted. Um, and what that means is that 25 years ago when I could have got a start, because I don't come from you know, any kind of money or anything like that, I, I, I could have got a start in a number of titles, and if I had shown any kind of smarts and, and, and ability, I would have got paid for it. And I would have been able to find, not paid a lot, but certainly paid something, I've been able to find a way to establish myself, as I did. Now, there's fewer titles, there's a lot of stuff online where there isn't quite the same money. Kids are invited to do things voluntarily, so they have to have money behind them. And, I, and it's, you know, this is not a good way to have a, a, a broad spectrum of people coming through any industry. Um, and so while it's good for nice middle class kids who you know who are smart and <laughs> I'm not diminishing their abilities nope. it, it it locks out a lot of working class kids or from difficult or other backgrounds and what I have tried to do over the last number of years is find a way to introduce them to industry some may have never thought of going into um, uh, journalism or publishing they just thought it wasn't for them so over the last little while particularly coming out of of um, COVID and lockdown, we, we really thought very differently about what the, the big issue was for, who it was for, how we served them, how we broadened the scope of people that we were helping. 
Uh, and this gave us an opportunity to think in terms of a new set of people who we could um, encourage through the industry, perhaps teach, help develop their voice, and then allow them to go on into uh, their chosen career, whether it's still in, in publishing or not. The important thing for me within that was to make sure that they had they were getting paid because if they were coming from difficult backgrounds uh, as it happened uh, most of them were on the, the the dole for a while i wanted to make sure that they got paid properly they get their travel expenses so that they they saw that this was a viable opportunity for them so that that was something of the starting point we worked the government had their kickstart scheme that allowed employers a certain amount of, of money to employ young people um we actively sought people from more marginalized backgrounds and um we within the big issue we upped the the pay so it wasn't we i think the money coming through kickstart was at minimum wage and what we've done is bring it up to london living wage plus travel expenses so they we've got a we've got four initially young people who are maybe very early 20s Right. Uh, and they're going through the, a program that we've developed um, that takes them through rudiments of news and feature writing, um, page layout, all these kind of things. But also, given where we are, you know, they're going to they're creating in a way that we wouldn't necessarily have created. And they're speaking in voices that we don't have to yep, yep. people of their age. So th- whether it's through TikTok channels or, or however they decide is the best means to output that stuff they're teaching me as much as as we're teaching them (laughs) i love that i mean that idea that you've got that cohort there that i'm you know i'm guessing they'll learn from you guys but they'll learn from each other and then they pass something back to you that's that's the problem with this isn't it you know this idea that you've got you don't have the voices to talk to the audience is one thing but you also don't have the voices internally so no one's asking the questions that you know. There's questions getting missed inside the organisations. You're absolutely right. You know, there's. I think another side to this, not just that um, certain people get locked out, but as as you've just touched on there, when you've been doing this for a while, and I've got a number of people here who've been with me for a few years who are really brilliant, able, smart journalists, but they. They're, they're getting on a bit they you know they come from <laughs> they don't come from a whole varied set of backgrounds yeah. in any way you know they'll, they'll have their own growing concerns so they won't necessarily be able to you know vendors tell us things obviously and we're yeah. very much plugged in to uh, that particular voice and we understand it but a wider societal spread isn't just here and that's important I think you know you can't you can't preach you can't talk down we can't say, oh, I am a, a man in my mid-40s. I'm going to tell you how to do a TikTok on something <laughs> or other. You know, it will be so funny. It will be laughable. Yeah. Uh, be like Alan Partridge. If you're serious about being a serious modern publisher, whether that is through the magazine or online or, or social, you need to not just listen to but incorporate the voices of the changing public. And that's what we're trying to do. Looking back at your job as, as you know, the kind of head of that organisation editorially, one of the challenges that I think you've got to be facing is this balance between the campaigning aspect to the big issue and the actual just being a magazine and entertaining people aspect of it. You know, there's a, I saw John Bird's got a, a 
piece in, I think it was this week or last week, was 700 people died this year, homeless people died this year on the streets. Yeah. <laughs> That's a really, really big deal when it's core to your mission. And then at the same time, you've got Adrian Lobb interviewing um, Simon Le Bon. <laughs> you know, how, how do you balance that, that, that as an agenda? Well, I think you've you got to take a step back from that. When I come in to the magazine, I, I, unlike a lot of people who were involved with the big issue, I didn't come from any kind of social background. And I mean that in a broad sense, whether that is working in the third sector or um, having worked in absolutely that campaigning edge of, of journalism or, or for those kind of titles or in communications. I came from a commercial editorial background. I worked for newspapers. I worked for the NME. I worked for titles that needed to sell in order to get people in. So I came with that attitude that the, the first thing that we really need to do is um, to sell magazines. Because if, you, if you're not selling magazines, then you can't change anything. You know, you can't change hearts and minds. You can't, you can't allow vendors to earn money you, or you won't be able to. You won't have readers come in and build this community you need to. So my, my first objective was to make it a magazine that people wanted to read. Clearly, there, there's a, a social justice aspect, the big issue that has been there from the start. But that, that was important. And so over the years, we, I, I've stopped it. You know, most publishers act in, in silos. So they will say, here is our demographic. Here's the style of writing, the style of picture, you know, in this silo, it's it's women of 20 to 35 who are interested in this kind of lifestyle and we're going to speak to that. We can't do that because we sell on the street. We have to, we've got a certain core readership and then we have to get new ones in every week. So I had to find a way to appeal to them. And so I, I came up with this idea that it was this cross silo uh, and it was a, on a very base level interesting people saying interesting things and once you start with that if you go well that's not very interesting who wants to read that then you can start to change it and then we started to do things there's always been a not always but there's been an approach of Trojan horse and certain things so you'd have a certain thing on the cover that would appeal and then inside you, you would do some of the, the heavier lifting and that worked to an extent and then as, as things developed, I wanted to go a bit further than that because I thought that's slightly misleading. And also, you know, again, not that interesting, just sticking a big well-known face on and, and then saying, and here's a story about homelessness. So what I wanted to do, and I, I think we're getting close now with the particular new redesign we have, is to find a way to make every aspect that we are doing as entertaining or as, or as important or as necessary as any other. So it could, you know, whether it is us really saying this is not, <laughs> that sounds quite facile, but saying it's not good enough that we're allowing 700 rough sleepers to die in the streets while we carry an interview with Sam LeBon. I don't want it to feel as though they're, they feel incongruous. I want them to feel as though that is the DNA of the, the big issue. That is, that is interesting. How do we get involved in this? And by the way, it looks good. That's another important thing. We have to make sure the design makes the right sense of the type of agenda that we're trying to hit. What was the driver for that redesign? Um, well, th there were a couple of things. One, 
the magazine had got messy. You know, it, every redesign, I've worked on maybe two or three within the big issue, and each one, there'd always been something wrong with it, I felt, when we came out of it. And, you know, maybe we were listening to too many voices saying, well, we need this within it because the big issue, we need that within it. And we had, on one redesign, probably the most recent, got close to something really good. But during lockdown, because we had to take so much content out that, you know, our bread and butter stuff, whether it's interviews of people making films or uh, it's some kind of talk about events that are going on in the world, we, we had to take that out and we had to put substitutes in because that was how, you know, the world had changed and we had to react to it and find a way to do it. And then when we tried to come back out and, and re-establish the magazine, it didn't work. It, it was getting really messy. It didn't flow. The navigation was all over the place. And it had lost its way a bit. So we knew we had to really, really alter it completely. Um, and so I started, I come up with a, 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 you know, a way of doing this, working with initially John Bird and Paul Chill. And we reached an agreement on where we would go editorially. Then I'd always wanted to work with Matt Willey, who I think is just one of the great global designers. And there's a lot about magazines that I don't like. I think they can be formulaic. I think that they can be lazy on the cover. I think that they sometimes speak to other magazine people around the wider public. And I, I, I what I liked about Matt's designs was that he just went beyond. He thought differently, you know. And his, his stuff in the New York Times, I still look at some of that and I think, I just want to be here in these pages. And and that's what I wanted. I wanted some of that. And also, you know, stuff's really cool. So for about two months, first of all, Matt's one of the busiest men I've ever met. He's, he's always got two or three projects. He's, he's now moved on to Pentagram, that the big design house. Um, but he, when we started talking, we talked about Manchester United and mid-1950s to mid-1960s period jazz record covers for about a month. <laughs> that was it. That, that was all we really discussed in terms of identity and aesthetic. And then from that, we started talking wider about... There's a, an Italian magazine called IL that I really like how it, it does things with fonts rather than imagery but the pages never look full of text it's, it's a beautiful way of, of treating things um even though i can't understand <laughs> italian <laughs> but I, I i like looking at so we you know we started discussing that matt's got a particular thing that he's really good at with fonts and space but you know he uses a lot of the page but it doesn't look like it anyway this the, the whole thing developed there's a particular way that i wanted to approach news that wasn't news but it was it was kind of comment on the news and making overwritten headlines at the front of the book and changing navigation so we, we just went through everything and and then Matt said right we're going to look at the mast and we started looking at the mast and, and we just blew everything <laughs> that had been there and we recreated the magazine and I I'm very proud of it and you've you, you know you get thanks you do get nervous when you put these things out there because <laughs> Initially, I think everybody's going to go on, oh, no, what have you done? Yeah. Um, and there was a bit of that, but hopefully people are coming around now. Everyone I've ever talked to that's done a magazine redesign has been 
terrified of putting it out in the public because people get invested, don't they? The readers get invested and they're like, what have you done in my magazine? Yes, although and, and my argument to that frequently is, well, if, if more of you bought it, then perhaps we wouldn't <laughs> be doing quite so much. So come along with us now. Uh, I just saw a, a, a tweet, actually. Um, I, I have no idea who it was from. It was someone that said, so much quality journalism in the big issue. I wish more people would realise what a great reader it is. Do you get frustrated that that people aren't reading it harder or well no i mean you can't you can, i'll tell you what i do get frustrated at because you can't you can't make people read the thing you know you you can you can find ways as i said to make them want to be on the page to make them want to say this is where I, I love this now um what i do get frustrated about and this is an attitude i'm trying to change is that thing of people going oh but it's a really good read and that used to drive me mad <laughs> You know, because, well, of course, it's a very good read. What do you think we're doing here? Yeah. You know, we have good people. I've got really good columnists. Um, we think hard about how it looks. And now we've got this great, really um, agenda-shifting redesign. So my my thing is that I do get frustrated when people go, oh, but it's a good read. Of course, it's a good read. Let's move on from that. What I want is for it to be seen as the thing that leads that people go, well, yes, that's okay, but it's not quite as good as the big issue, you know? So that when they're, when they're talking to their pals, it's not that, oh, but it's a good read. It's, but, well, of course it's a good read, and they complain when it's not good enough. I want more of that. That's where I'm trying to get to. I think that's that balance between just making something that vendors can sell and making a full-on proper magazine. One of the things that must have changed for you is the subscription side of things. You know, people can buy it in the street just because they see a, a vendor or whatever, but people subscribe either, you know, because they, they care about the, you, the the campaigns or they care about you doing a, the job that you do, but also because they love getting the magazine every week. I get it every week, and I, you know, I, I love it. But th has that changed the way you approach it? No, not at all. I, I'm glad that we have subscribers and I'm glad that initially the subscriber base grew very quickly during the first lockdown yeah. because there was no other route to market. There were some, we went through retail for a bit, but it was subscriptions that, that carried us for a few weeks. I've, I've um, no issue with us having subscribers and it doesn't change how we produce the magazine at all. I'm just glad we're getting it in their hands. What I want to do, really, is find a way that we build enough online so that if you're a subscriber, you get a little extra online. Um, I want people to understand that when they subscribe, it, th there's a few things that they can do that either will help directly a particular vendor. They can subscribe from the person who they want to subscribe from, so that money will go directly to them or they understand that this is a this is more broadly helping us to help vendors so that there's still that connection because i think if we lose that that's a problem but i suppose if we had more time and we could really you know if we were monthly we'd do a slightly different edition for subscribers but no we don't it doesn't change how we do it with the redesign um i did think more about people grazing and access points and, and magazine which you know it sounds like one of those things that you should do normally anyway but I hadn't always and perhaps that maybe in the back of my mind 
that was something about giving subscribers a little more because if it lies around the house, they might they might navigate a magazine differently. But it wasn't. It certainly wasn't in the forefront of my mind. This this last eighteen months has obviously been massive. Has that? Do you think it's changed the way you work? And you know, partly of that. Partly, I guess, is more. You've got more stuff online now. Yeah. So, so has it definitely changed the way you work? Oh, it has. It has totally changed it. When that lockdown happened, first of all, aside from everybody within the organisation focused on this goal of keeping things going, and and it was just a remarkable, wonderful energy to keep it going. You know, it was yeah. it was nightmarish, but at the same time, it was energising. You know, we were going to do this. There was also a, a very quick realisation that we just were not good enough online. We... We had waxed and waned with what we were doing with the um, the output online. The numbers were nowhere near where they needed to be. Uh, and we thought we need to find a way to make our digital output not just support sales on the street, but offer something wider to show what the big issue is about, reach more people, which would then potentially bring more subscriptions which will help us to support more people in the street or or indeed just be a way that people know more about the big issue and we need to use it to get because of the the political situation was changing so much we couldn't really get into things in the magazine on the weekly cycle the way that we need to so it allowed us time to really think about what we had to do online um, and we built a team um, from scratch really Alistair Reid has come in as digital editor and he has overseen the redesign of the website which has been a, a big fundamental change and then we built a team a news team each of them have different focus and different beats that they will yeah. focus on and then we will work out how we can use versions of that in the magazine as well so there's more of a link between online and um, offline it's a crappy phrase, but do you think, <laughs> have you very quickly become digital first? We were certainly digital first with, with news, 100% we are. We, you know, the, the news conference in the morning now, it, it's a digital meeting and it is, it is, as any news conference is, what have you got, what are you working on, what are you following up, really? And, and it's, it's brilliant, given the, the, the way things are. I don't always have time to sit in on those meetings. But it, the young team that we have, I don't mean that in, in a, an old Scottish way, a young team going around <laughs> causing trouble. I mean, they're, they're a team of younger people, young journalists, um, who are, are really, really good. They're really smart. They're really sharp. They have, I've always wanted to make sure that we have a wit in what we do, not a piousness. Yeah. And they get it. And they, they've got good ideas, whether it's about environment, whether it is about... Um, issues around social justice or the, the 20 pound cup for um, yep. people in benefit you know wh whatever it is we've got people here really on it coming up with great stories great op-eds and it's yes they are that is totally digital first and it's it's allowed us to rapidly increase the number of um uniques that we are getting on the site which will hopefully take us to a different point and make us a, a different sort of publishing organization so what's next what, what have you got going on next year well, it's continued development online. I think that's, there's a lot of exciting things that we can do. 
there's more investigative stuff I think we can do. Now that the, the team are starting to get embedded, we can really think about how we, it's not just a story, but it's, it's a perhaps a longer read or longer investigation. It's got a longer tail on it, both for online and in magazine. And I think because of the way Britain is emerging from um, COVID, because of the huge fissures that, that are there between the haves and the have-nots, we have to, we have to hold those in part to account. We have to be a place, a platform for those without a voice. We have to just be bigger and better in those aspects than we have before. We, we're getting pretty good at it, but I want us to do more of that. We will, when you touch on campaigning, we will carry on being a, a campaigning title. We will, we will, as you know, we've been doing this thing called Stop Mass Homelessness, and the idea is that we fear around 200,000 households could fall into homelessness, which is just a deadly shock. And we want to do something about that. We were campaigning uh, on a governmental level to get rid of um, rent debt that yep. blew up during COVID. So we, we will carry on doing that. I want to see the magazine, now that's got the, this great new framework and design, I want to see how we can use that in interesting ways. Um, and I want to make sure that we, we, we just carry on serving the vendors because that's, you know, we've got all these, these great developments around us, but we have to remember why we're here. And that is for the, at base, for the, the poorest, the most marginalized in the country, we offer them a means to work their way out of that. And that's what we have to try and do. We will continue to do that. We will serve other people. There, there's an e-bikes scheme that's about to launch in Bristol. <laughs> you'll, you'll be able to get a, a big issue bike that's interesting. Um, we th there's a whole as ever with the big issue, you know. There, there's there's <laughs> a hundred and one things happening, but I think we we do have some real focus on on the things that we need to do. We always ask our guests for a recommendation, a media recommendation, something that they would uh, say that our listeners should go off and read or listen to or watch. What would your recommendation be? I am not a huge consumer of magazines. Strange as that may seem, given the industry and the time I've been in it. But what I do really like is London Review of Books, which is the most plain, poorly designed title that you could ever see. It's just text. Faint, please. It is banks of text, but it is brilliant. I, I, I just read it. I, I go to the letters page first in London Review of Books, and I always feel much more intelligent by the end of the letters <laughs> page <laughs> than when I started. I really, I, I love London Review Books and I, I always find out something else. For a book, I'm going to, if I could, I'm going to recommend a book called When We Cease to Understand the World. It's by this, I think it's Belgian-Chilean writer called Benjamin Labatu. Uh, and it, it <laughs> I'm going to describe it but it, it will sound absolutely mental. It is sort of about physics and philosophy. Uh, and it goes from World War I through to the, the um, quantum physics discovery to... Uh, it, it, go and read it. It, it. it will blow your mind. I read it at the start of the year. I had to read it again immediately afterwards. It, you're just in it. It's, it's a beautiful, beautiful book. Um, and I, I cannot recommend it enough. 
As we mentioned at the top of the episode, this is our final episode of the year. We're going to be back in 2022, early Jan, with more news and views. But until then, you can continue to receive our daily newsletter, which we're going to do for this coming week. And then we're going to take a well-earned break. So you can get that newsletter by going to voices.media and signing up there. If you like it, your Christmas gift to us can be sending it on to a friend or recommending it. We really appreciate it. Can I just say, is anybody else still like mentally like the start of 2021? Like, yeah. like where where is the year gone? It doesn't make any sense. I haven't done any Christmas shopping yet. I'm actually still on March 2020. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, thanks so much. Uh, just a little shout out to the Artisan Coffee Co. who have kept Peter and I fueled with coffee yes. since the summer. Um, apparently, I need another cup because I still don't know what year <laughs> it is or what day it is or <laughs> what's going on. Also, talking about Christmas and giving, because it is better to give than to receive, um, if you get over <laughs> to a coffee page. <laughs> Um, and give us the price of a virtual coffee, then that would be pathetically gratefully received. We would love you. Coffee page is on voices.media. Go on. But until next year, when we'll be back with another round of guests, hopefully some cheery news and views about the media world. Thank you so much for listening and Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas if you celebrate it. And a Happy New Year. Happy Holidays. <laughs>